Today's episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all need somebody to talk to, to share with, connect, bond, feel seen, heard, understood. If you go to betterhelp.com forward slash Leo, you can start your work today with a therapist. Start talking to somebody right now. We know that isolation and withdrawing is not the antidote to feelings of despair and depression. It's about connecting, communicating, sharing. Uh, but it requires us to be open, requires us to be vulnerable, and that's where the growth is. That's where the magic is. And the cool thing about BetterHelp is that it's online. You can access it 24 hours a day through uh, text messaging or because I know a lot of us, I don't like driving through traffic to go see my therapist. I got enough things on my plate. Next, last thing I need to do is be fighting through a commute to go see a therapist and then sitting in that office. You can do this from the comfort of your own home. And the cool thing is within 48 hours of you contacting BetterHelp, you'll be matched with a therapist. And if you don't like that therapist, they'll match. They'll find you another one until you find one that you do pair with. I mean, I think I'm on my third therapist right now it's not a crisis hotline right but it is a connection service where you can feel connected and you can feel like oh I matter I'm significant and I'm not alone in this journey so go to betterhelp.com forward slash leo enjoy your 10% off your first month with that it's uh, linked in the show notes and with that said, let's get into the episode. Welcome to another episode of Before You Kill Yourself with your host, Leo Flowers. I am Leo Flowers. Uh, today's guest is Becky Gray, who is a Pilates instructor at Physio Pilates. Uh, she also swims and is, uh, she had, oh, I, you know, people say survivor of cancer, but I, I have a... There's something about saying survivor that doesn't resonate for me. I don't know what your take is, uh, Becky, but we'll get into that. But I'll say that you had ovarian cancer um, and been diagnosed with bipolar. And, and I'm excited to have you on, Becky, because when I look at um, the different cancers, ovarian cancer has the highest suicide rate of all the cancers. And, you know, it's also called the silent killer. And w when I look at some of the, the factors that lead into it, it's the finances of, you know, all the different treatments, um, the side effects from the treatments, and then also the pain of having ovarian cancer and then uh, from the treatments. Well, does any of that ring true for you and what your experience was, Becky? Yeah, certainly. Um, most of it, actually, you've uh, yeah hit the nail on the head. Um, yeah, it it came as a real shock to me actually um, to be diagnosed as I was. So it was last summer, July twenty twenty one, and I was probably the fittest I'd ever been at the age of forty seven at the time. Um, been competing in triathlons, and because of lockdown, actually, I'd sort of really taken up. Swifting on a turbo bike indoors, especially the second lockdown. I can't remember actually all the lockdowns, but um, I'm certainly doing probably two hours on that at least four times a week, um, as well as other stuff and working and ferrying the children around and so on. So, um, 
yeah, I was I was very busy and you know, generally until I had symptoms, felt super healthy. So yeah, what were those yeah, symptoms it was a bit for of, you? So in I guess March, April time, when I look back now, I put it down to other things, but I started to sort of have little abdominal pains that on the right side, lower abdomen, and they sort of started to get a bit more frequent. And when I was doing Pilates, I get some really sharp pains when I was doing some higher level um, side bends and things. And I was teaching Pilates over Zoom at that point. So um, there was a few occasions when I thought I'm not going to be able to hold the position I'm in because it was so painful. Uh, but I, I used, I just about managed to sort of get through it. And then there were other things start to happen, like changes in needing the loo, both <laughs> uh, wing and the other. So uh, and and then I started to get bloating as well. And by the time I went to the GP, um, I looked probably well, I felt about five or six months pregnant. So quite a tight stomach you know I uh so I've got two children so I know what it feels like to be pregnant but I knew I definitely wasn't pregnant um and and yeah the GP did all the right things bearing in mind my symptoms she was very thorough I also had gone into that appointment armed with um a very good friend of mine is a is also a GP and someone I cycle with and she said when you do go for your appointment make sure she does x y and z and um, if she doesn't, you know, request um, this, you know, a blood test and this particular marker, which is CA125. Um, and and sure enough, my GP was brilliant and did all those correct tests. So I was very quickly um, in the t in England here in the NHS with any suspe suspicion of cancer or any serious pathology, you're put on a two week urgent uh, sort of train as it were of investigations and um referrals to specialists and so on so they were they've been brilliant in in that it was all very quick so I was very lucky a lot of a lot of ladies just get fobbed off and unfortunately for for sometimes over a year with um doctors telling them they've got IBS or they're going through the menopause, change their diet. You know, it's it's actually terrifying how many, yeah, medics are actually not brilliantly informed about this particular type of gynecological cancer. So, yeah, I feel very lucky, but also now I want to raise awareness of you know the 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 symptoms that are, can be quite misleading or or a little bit vague and could be other things very similar to sort of bowel cancer symptoms really which um again i mean in, in in this country that's way more in the press and there's lots more awareness now but a very cancer as you said you know it doesn't have great stats unfortunately on on many fronts so five years survivorship of the type of ovarian cancer i've got no actually all types of ovarian cancer so to for my chance of being alive after five years in England is 43%, whereas for breast cancer, it's 85%. So that just shows that that difference um, is quite, is massive really, yeah. So you, you talked about uh, abdominal pains, the bloating, feeling like you're, you're months pregnant, having to go to the bathroom 
frequently in terms of symptoms. And then what did you say the test was again to, for the ovarian cancer? Is a CA125 marker. So it's a tumor marker. So a bit more specific to ovarian, but it's not diagnostic diagnostic on its own. Um, so it's it, it's just a simple blood test. So when the the GP who I initially saw in June um, examined me, she she said you need blood's taken, you need to do a poo sample, and she did an abdominal um, palpation to check for any lumps or um, you know obvious tumors but actually maybe at that time I wasn't that bloated I think for that appointment I was actually okay so she didn't notice any bloating there were no lumps that she could feel in my abdomen so I just went and got the blood test which was a full blood count and plus this marker which I think is a separate it wouldn't normally be looked for but um if you went for other reasons um so it's a very specific kind of um ovarian cancer marker However, it can be raised in things like fibroids and endometriosis. It can even be raised above normal, just depending on where you are in your menstrual cycle. So, so it's, it's not it's not definitive by itself. You have to look at. Other, that's right. Got it. Yeah. And, and so yeah. how did once from from the moment you're diagnosed? did your diet have to change at all no not really I mean I think it's no there's there was no particular advice I mean the same as as normal kind of eat lots of veg and fruit and fresh produce and no there's no specific don't eat this or don't eat that um it was more around a healthy diet so just yeah, eat healthy as, as, as for anyone really yeah Wow. And then how was your sleep affected? Because you're you're talking about bloating, abdominal pains. Was it keeping it was it enough to keep wake you up at night? Was there anxiety about falling asleep? There was what once I knew, you know, what it actually was, it, it I didn't really sleep very much, to be honest. It was very intermittent. Previous to being diagnosed, when I look back, I had actually been really tired. So sometimes I could have I've been working because I was also vaccinating. So I trained up as a, because I'm a physiotherapist, I could train up as a um, vaccinator. So I was doing quite a few shifts like that, doing my physio work, Pilates, children at school and their all their social and sporting activities. Um, so sometimes I would put them to bed, say half eight, nine. This is back in February, March time, 2021. And I just lie down on my bed and I'd be um, I'd wake up the next day at uh, seven o'clock fully, fully clothed. So I did that probably that was probably about five months of doing that at least twice a week. And the other thing is I forgot to mention is um, night sweats, massive night sweats. Yeah. To the point where wake up absolutely drenched and freezing because there's so much sweat. <laughs> Yeah, what causes the the night sweats? Like, what's happening at a physiological? That can be a sign of uh, pathology as well. Um, Equally, menopausal symptoms can include hot flushes and night sweats and things. So, kind of, I had put it down to 
perimenopausal type symptoms bearing in mind I'm yeah I was 47 so it's quite quite plausible it could have been that but actually it was probably a bit too much you know looking back you know it's uh it could have been a sign that I could have um had had things looked at a bit sooner but yeah you don't at the time you sort of just put it down to to other things and uh, the other thing also was sort of changes in menstrual cycle so more bleeding than 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 normal and so on um which which sort of stemmed back to kind of October 2020 so that had been probably going on maybe like eight months but again I thought approaching menopause it could be that so it that in itself didn't prompt me to go and seek any any advice from the doctors any yeah, it's family, only with retrospect really <laughs> any yeah. uh, family history of ovarian cancer or does cancer run in the family uh no it doesn't actually there is uh, my uncle died of quite an aggressive prostate cancer when he was 76 five or six you know he wasn't old really in these days terms um so that there is links with ovarian and prostate but he was an uncle on my mother's side and then my grandma who I'd never met um did have breast cancer in her 40s I think but actually she she recovered from that and um she died from other other causes in the end in her late 50s I think so there's not a massive history like so I mean Angelina Jolie's the, the the classic one that I kind of when people are asking me about um ovarian cancer because it isn't well known about um I use her and her mother as a sort of um example of uh, well of of it really her she, but she carries I think the BRCA one or two genes which I don't because I have had that that tested so but that gives you obviously the option of doing what she did which is have I think she's had a double mastectomy and probably a radical or yeah I would have thought a radical hysterectomy um and you um, have yeah. you have two children Becky how did yeah. you how old how old are they or how old were they at the time but, uh, of but, diagnosis yeah at the time Tom was 10 he's the older one and then Imogen was eight and how did you have the, the discussion with them or did you talk about it at all or did, was there like a we sit did down? it was very no it wasn't really like that in in that I because I've sort of been in the medical profession I'm not you know obviously not a medical but medic as a doctor but I'm an allied health professional as, as we're called over here um and I'd worked in the NHS on and off well on mainly till 2010 from and I graduated as a physio in 2001 so yeah I had a 2001 2010 yeah I'd had quite quite um you know, a fair amount of time as a physio. And then since 2010, I, I went having, after having Tom, I, I just gone back to private, private clinics really. So I could work part-time with more flexibility and so on. So I kind of knew what was going on quite quickly. You know, I had a pretty, once that CA125 marker came back raised um, and I started Googling it, you know, I hadn't heard of it, but 
I yeah Google Google was uh visited a lot and um you know I was quite upset at times and you know they they saw that I didn't I'm not very good at hiding hiding things really so I didn't say this you know the dreaded cancer word until we are absolutely new but my son I think guessed and we did talk about the possibility that it could have been that before it was confirmed um because actually his first year first teacher when he was in year three which what would he have been then seven or six seven had grade uh sorry staging had stage four breast cancer so it was she was in and out of treatment so she might be teaching them for a couple of months and then another teacher would come in and she would be off having treatment and so on so um she was very open with her class and with Tom and all of them about what was going on. So, and explained it. There was no hiding, no, um, of, of what was happening. So he, he had a certain amount of understanding. Um, and, and yeah, he questioned me a bit more about it being with that knowledge, I think. Yeah. You, you yeah talked so about- I just tried to be as honest as possible. Um, it, yeah, I mean, what what a benefit to kind of have, you know, the teacher in some ways prime him for, you know, what to expect. Yeah. And so it made it less scary when you shared that. I think so, because he'd seen and it, she also is his best teacher ever. So even now he's he's now 11 and that was seven. He he always says she was the best teacher. So and she is a lovely, lovely lady and incredibly strong and brave. And she's um, yeah, she's had a lot of treatment and it's you know it is quite brutal um but she's the other day actually the other day back in mid-may I think it was she did a 10k sort of jog walk thing for charity it was a an organized event but um you know she's she's got some physical um problems with the side effects of her treatment and um but she still did a did that 10k jog walk and um raised raised more money for um cancer research i think or uh, one of the the hospices around here um that mightn't hospice that's it that have been very you know supportive of her and 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 actually i've used their services at times as well so yeah, yeah said she was, side she's effects. been an inspiration what what side effects have you experienced from the from the treatment for me i so i had chemos from September so beginning September till mid-November every Friday on a three-week cycle so every Friday I'd go into the hospital and have the chemotherapy so through a cannula through a through the vein um it took about six or seven hours to two different types of chemo and then all the the other meds to stop allergic reactions and so on um and then yeah, so that I basically had five cycles between September and November, and the the side effects of this chemo is hair loss. Um, some chemos don't actually. I didn't know that. I thought every, everybody lost the hair with chemo, but the type of chemo I had, which was carboplatin and pick, I never could, I can never say it, paclitaxel, I think, um, and one of them's sort of more poisonous than the other. Uh, but yeah, you lose your hair. Nausea, fatigue are the big ones. 
uh, peripheral neuropathy, so numbness at the end of your toes and fingers, which can be temporary or permanent. I'm trying to think what else. Constipation or diarrhea, <laughs> the opposite. Uh, I mean, there's an absolute, you know, there's, a, there's almost a book of book of side effects that you have to read and go through. It doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get all of them. And I was actually really lucky in that I didn't really, and they managed the nausea side of things very well in that you have anti-nausea medication and um, what else? Yeah, I mean, they managed that with meds, which I, you know, had no idea about. You know, I my experience of it was seeing, you know, the movies where you've got back in the, back in the day when you've got um, those, those films where people are having treatment for cancer and they're, they're sort of hugging the toilet for days after their treatment, but it wasn't like that at all. So I was very relieved. Yeah. Um, I mean, it was, it was, and the fatigue actually wasn't for me, wasn't, wasn't that bad, but I used, I was very depressed at the time. So I used, I used to sort of use it as a cover. Um, even though I wasn't, tired I would say I was because of the chemo and then I could stay in bed all day at times when I just didn't want to get up and face the world so it was a strange one really yeah so tell me more about that because I imagine you know being a lifelong active person and now at the age of 47 where, where it seems like you know I remember when I was injured it's like god damn it like I checked all the boxes I did all the right things like, why is this happening to me? Um, t- take me more through what parts of it was upsetting for you and depressing for you. Yeah, I, I have to. I do have a history of um, some mental illness episode. I don't want to say mental health because actually that's a very different thing. I think, but yeah, I have a history going back to when I was nineteen of. Um, quite relatively short but quite severe episodes of what was then told I was then told was depression um and through my life uh, I've had let's say I think it's about four episodes um and this being probably the fourth I can't remember the dates exactly in the times but so I did have that sort of background um, what I've and it's always tended to be a bit like this a major event of something happens a relationship breakup or something quite significant um, and I'm seemingly fine and then I literally drop off a cliff into the a deep depression very quickly um, and it becomes you know quite worryingly sort of dangerous quite relatively quickly um, and but I was only recently diagnosed as bipolar, actually, probably six weeks ago. Or I mean, I don't like the word diagnosis, really, but um, the very nice psychiatrist that interviewed me at that point just said, I think you might be, have you ever heard of bipolar? I was like, yeah, yeah. And it was actually a relief because, um, yeah, the pattern of what happened to me was always a bit other other couple of other psychiatrists have been a bit don't know what's going on there I don't think you're really depressed you know they, they hadn't really taken me seriously um because I didn't fit the kind of I don't know the general view of depression medical clinical depression which tends to be you know have good days bad days it tends to be more of a constant uh, whereas I would you know, drop and then 
when I did get better, it was all quite quick. And I'd have a, you know, a sort of high stage that were manic, if you want to call it that. But those manic phases weren't severe enough in the past to have caused anyone's attention. You know, I wasn't buying, you know, brand new cars and getting into massive debt. I was just having, you know, what I thought was a really good time, like a student type, (laughs) type good time. Um, Yeah. Yeah, it's always painful to be in that uh, gray area of mental illness where it's your depression isn't so severe where uh, it's, it's, you know, sounding all the alarms and the mania isn't so severe where, you know, you're doing like a Coke binge in Vegas and, you know, you know, spending, <laughs> yes, uh, you know, all, all your money um, on, you mm. know, whatever. And, and so like when you're in that, like kind of average extreme versus, you know, extreme extreme it it does get overlooked and i think that it's also Mm. why i think a lot of people don't get help is because their mental illness isn't so severe where they can't function but they don't realize that it's it's enough to where they're not operating optimally you know and and so it can Mm. be a, a little confusing so once you had the diagnosis of bipolar what were the steps after that what what were the suggested treatments or I mean I'm I'm uh, there's a bit of a backstory to all of of where we came to with that bipolar diagnosis as it were um which I'll, I'll maybe go into in a sec but the yeah so I saw this lovely psychiatrist and I say lovely because I've had a a couple of really shocking experiences with psychiatrists and um psychiatric hospital that's a plural um but yeah so this was only as I said six weeks ago so where are we July I think it was the end of June yeah I saw him and um so he's basically I've been referred to a um a social worker who specializes in in preventing or helping to prevent relapse and and we're going to look at strategies to recognize warning signs and um you know what what I want to happen and what will help to to stop it getting to the point that it did in May this year so where I ended up in hospital um with what they thought was an infection but actually it was a it was quite complicated but it was actually me having a sort of psychotic episode um uh and the backstory to that, just to sort of give you the background, uh, when I was 19, um, I'd had a, a kind of normal and happy childhood, I'd left, left school. Uh, I did a bit of traveling between school and university and uh, the back end of the trip I made to Africa, I started to feel really strange and was analyzing everything in my life. I felt guilty about everything. I thought I was a you know, a horrible person, everything was just doom and gloom. And I got back from that trip and I just, yeah, I, I sort of sunk further down. No one really knew what was going on. It wasn't ever really spoken about in those days. So that would have been late 80s, I think, when I was 19. Yeah, I was born in 73. Um, and it was a bit like, pull your socks up a little bit, you know, what's going on? You've, you've had a great trip to Africa. You're, you've got a place at university. And I didn't know what was going on. You know, I didn't, I just 
thought, and I did express it to my mum. I just said, I don't want to be alive. And I, that's all I could say. I couldn't put into words the sort of the pain, the brain pain, I guess, that I was, I was experiencing. And I ended up the GP. So that's the primary care here, um, who was a bit old school, really. And he was sort of nearing retirement. Um, I'm not saying, you know, he was a he was a kind man. But in those days, the tolerance for, for admitting people to psychiatric hospitals was quite low, i.e. I was saying things that like, I don't want to be alive and so on. And he, yeah, I was admitted to hospital. I wasn't sectioned. I don't know if you know, have that in the, in, in the States. But um, so I went willingly, well, not really willing. I didn't really know what I was, what was happening, but it was just absolutely horrific experience. Um, I was basically felt like a prison and I was over medicated. I reactions to a drug called chlorpromazine, which is an antipsychotic drug. When I was admitted, I was just depressed and very quiet, quite passive. Um, you know, I, I was scared, but I didn't react in a kind of, um, what's the word? an aggressive manner I just would lie on my bed been what and, and you're watched for 24 7 so I was in a little cell almost with a tiny window um with obviously nothing in it and yeah a mental health nurse at the end of the bed writing notes and just observing me so I never got any sleep because well I did probably but I it didn't feel like I did and then there was alarms going off and people being injected and screaming and, and I mean it's just I was I ended up going mad, really, because I I then I just thought this can't be real. I must be in a movie. So I started to say, I think you're all actors. Um, and at which point they put me on this this chlorpromazine, which just <laughs> knocked me out because um, I just thought human beings can't behave in this way. It's so horrible, you know. And I think my little brain at nineteen, I I constructed this uh, world where it was all around me and they were they were acting um but having said that having said those words I was put on this chlorpromazine which physically sometimes I would just have drop attacks so I'd stand up and and drop to the floor um and you know I just didn't know what was going on um so I was in there for nearly three months with the psychiatrist saying, if you don't get better, we're going to put you on the long stay ward. So bear in mind, this the building in the, of the long stay ward was like this old Victorian sort of gothic um, asylum that, you know, was we weren't we weren't in that building, but we were we knew about the the other one because you walk past it to go to the, the sweet shop <laughs> or you went. Actually, we went in it and it's. Eer the eeriest thing ever you know that the walls were speaking you know there were I don't know what went on in there but um you know it it was yeah scary so they sort of said you'll be on that ward you'll be in that building and if you don't get better and you'll have ECT now I'm you know I'm sure they didn't say it in such a in in the way I'm saying to you but in my 19 year old brain that was what they were saying they're going to electric shock you. Yeah. 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 I didn't know what ECT was. You know, I, it just sounded terrifying. 
Um, and it was all, it's just, again, I was like, why would, what have I done? I felt like I was uh, a criminal. Um, and yeah, I mean, all I, I ended up like, when I did start to sort of not realise they weren't actors, I think I just went, right, I haven't murdered anyone. It's all right. I haven't murdered anyone. <laughs> I know I haven't done that. You know, it went like literally back to that baseline of this can't be a prison. I, I, I will be able to get out. So I kind of, I think I was getting better anyway. And that could have been, I don't think it, I definitely don't think it was the drugs. I think it was a time thing. I think I thought I, I learned to play the game and how to act and what to say to be released and you know I think in a way I'm kind of like wow that actually I, maybe I was quite intelligent <laughs> to work that out you know so, um, so a couple questions one is is the asylum still in existence no so it was closed down um in I think it was early 2000s I might be wrong yeah, yeah. I, I mean, you can look it up. It's it's called um, it's it's quite a famous one, and certainly in this area because it was massive in its heyday. You know, it was like a it was like a um, a kibbutz. Wow. <laughs> um, and you know, it housed sort of I think it, over a thousand patients. Um, it was called Central Hospital Hatton. Um, Hatton yeah, Central Hospital. Hatton um, near Warwick and uh, yeah now it's it's all made into lovely plush houses that um, rich people buy <laughs> and apartments and, and it's a massive housing estate um, and, and funnily enough my mum was an interior designer at the time and used to you know help people decide what curtains they were going to have. And she was actually involved in the, in the show home. So she helped the builders sort of decorate a few of the homes to a show home. So people are going to have a look around and, you know, just bizarre. But um, yeah, we've been back there. And I mean, I've actually been back there to drop my son off um, at his, his mate's house for a sleepover. And it, it always, you know, I always get this really weird feeling there. Um, I mean, it's actually a beautiful building. This, this main, the main bit of it, this gothic kind of huge thing, is is beautiful. But the history that it's it's got inside it, you know, I I I could never live there. <laughs> wow, yeah, um, I, I yeah. can't imagine. To, yeah, to still have that and, and the visceral experiences that you you've had there. What? Mm. So, what was the game like? What did you learn to say to get out of there? Or not so um I just think I I went to all the so I engaged with all the therapists and they had sort of art therapy sessions and they had physio sessions. And I think initially I just lay on my bed and refused to go anywhere. Um so I started I realized that, that actually, you know, that there was good stuff going on. There were people trying to help. I'm not saying it was all it was all evil, <laughs> but um and, and you know individuals who were who were probably lovely they were just working in a system that was you know just a bit brutal um so yeah I, I art therapy 
you know, painting pictures and making clay stuff. And I'd go to the physio sessions in the gym. I mean, there wasn't lots of that. You know, bearing in mind you're there 24-7, there'd be an hour of art therapy on a Monday and a a gym session on a Tuesday and a psychological, maybe a group thing on a Wednesday. You know, it was it was small amounts, but I think you got the tick box thing if you if you went to them all. And and I guess eating, you know, eating properly. I probably my appetite wasn't great, but I would, you know, eat eat stuff because that's all recorded and um yeah, I think just things like that. And and I probably, you know, to be fair, I probably was was improving. And for me, looking back, I think that's that was a sort of time, really. I think it, I would have gone through these cycles because I've been through these cycles since. Um, and it, I have had other medication, as in just um, mainly antidepressants, so fluoxetine, Prozac, um, and things. And but but they have all been very short periods of time, very severe, with suicidal feelings and and actions unfortunately but um that th- yeah incredibly short-lived um and then with a the big leap get, in the getting better and, and living life kind of slightly slightly manically but uh as i said it went under the radar yeah so it sounds like you know just following the program you know attending yeah the engaging basically instead of isolating mm. withdrawing which I mean, it's just a rule of life, right? It, it's it's yeah. better to get up out your bed. I mean, not all the times. I mean, there there is a time to rest and restore and recover. Um, yeah. But just in life, engaging, participating, checking the boxes, as you said, uh, and and, mm. and making sure that you are maintaining some type of routine, uh, eating routine. Um, and yeah. that's how we progress and, and get out and, and absolutely the, the pain of it all what were your <laughs> yeah. parents were your parents able to visit you there my mom did uh, my dad had had mental illness problems that I didn't really know about massively at the time but I, I did know that he'd had a, a few episodes through his life starting in childhood actually and, and no one ever really talked about it much but occasionally he would sort of disappear and, and probably was having treatment, but I would, but those times I was say eight or something. So I, I, at that point when I was 19, I wasn't massively aware. Well, my parents had, had divorced when I was 16, 15, 16. So um, they weren't together. And I, I think, yeah, my dad was probably not in a great state at that point, so he didn't come in. But my mum, my mum did. She found it awful. She couldn't quite bear it. And um, my sister did a couple of times. My middle sister, um, I think the other one did too. Yeah, so I've got two older sisters, um, but they were, you know, they're one of the uh, eldest one was at university at the time, so she was. Or she might even be working. She would have been 25, 6. So she had her life in, I think she lived in London. Yeah, she wasn't at university. She was living in London working. So, you know, limited amount of time to get away from that. And the other sister who was, uh, would have been 25 at the time was, again, had her own life, you know, working. And But she was more local. So she probably, yeah, she did come in a bit more. But not on a daily basis. It would have been 
had to have a visitor two or three times a week and that was all just family those those two yeah are there to switch tracks a little bit or actually to, to go back a little bit are there any suggestions for people in terms of managing the pain of chemotherapy or ovarian cancer i know you talked about there were meds that you were given but uh, mm. did you incorporate anything else in uh to help manage the pain and discomfort of it all you know i i didn't really have much pain actually once once i'd had the the surgery which was in december 2021 get my get my years right so yeah december the 30th 2021 i had this major abdominal surgery so the chemo that was done from september to november did its job well of shrinking the tumors because it's multiple tumors was in um in the abdominal cavity and around the right ovary i think can't remember now anyway they December 30th the gynae oncology surgeon um yeah basically did a radical hysterectomy he checked all the all the bowels so basically he explained what he does he literally takes all your bowels out and with his hand some surgeons do it differently but pretty much I think they just check all the bowel um the outside because there's a very close connection between the bowel and ovarian stuff um and luckily the bowel wasn't too bad I don't think because going into the surgery there was a chance I wasn't gonna um come out I'm sorry I was going to come come out with a stoma stoma bag so that was one of the one of the things that was really bothering me going into it they just don't they just can't tell you the extent until they actually open you up um which is a big incision it's from your breastbone down right down to your pubic bone so directly vertically down and then they sort of open you up and, uh, and and check everything so appendicectomy as well radical hysterectomy appendicectomy amentumectomy so I never knew that the amentum existed it's a fatty kind of skirt around the um sort of back of your abdomen um inside wall and it it's a really it loves catching cancer and growing it so they just strip that out and they strip the peritoneal lining out and remove these nodules um yeah so they take anything that they can see that's cancerous out um and that's glued back up uh lots of morphine um and yeah that 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 was it that was the eight hour job so yeah i was in over 30th of december was is our wedding at ten, it was our 10th wedding anniversary um wow. and um yeah new year's eve was spent with three lovely ladies in a bay <laughs> uh the three other ladies that had also had major surgery but were quite significantly older than me bless them so i was uh i was very much the the youngster in the in the ward <laughs> yeah how old yeah. are you now becky no i'm 48 so uh, so you're 48 now and yeah. you t- mentioned earlier brain pain how do you yeah. manage brain pain now because in terms of the the bipolar diagnoses and mm. what, what what's your regimen for do you have a daily management routine or 
How do you handle it? I don't really. Yeah, I don't. I because I don't have any. That's it's interesting. I'm just um, a bit bizarre in the fact that I do have these severe episodes and then I'm kind of fine. And that's the other reason, I guess, why um, it wasn't really found out until now, because I'd have long periods of time when I was, you know, living a full and happy life and didn't have major upset, just the normal life ups, ups and downs, but nothing, nothing significant. Um, so those, yeah, you know, years go would go by between these episodes, which, as I said, there was prob- probably been, yeah, a total of four. And those would last maximum, maximum six months. Or, and that really is, yeah, maximum, probably more like three, four. And I've lost my track. I can't remember what I was saying now or why well, I was saying it. Well, the, the you know, part of the question is you talked about when you were 19 um, and yeah, that yeah. you talked about like not wanting to be here anymore and experiencing mm-hmm. a brain pain. What are you doing now? Like when you look at like yeah. why you still want to be here, how are you managing the brain pain? And what's keeping you tethered and grounded yeah. now? That's a really good question. And uh, I have thought about it a lot. But And actually your podcast and um, a few other podcasts were, were very useful at a time when I was really down. And actually the things that really stuck out with some of your guests uh, that you spoke to um, was things will you know things will change it's not you're not always gonna feel like this because I think when you're in the depths you just imagine that it's forever it's like living hell and yeah that you know the 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 guests on your podcast particularly were very inspiring because there was a lot of um a lot of them would say you know it will change and also that kind of feeling of um purpose and you know providing service you know I've got a lot of qualifications in a way and a lot of expertise in the area of health that I work in and um I think that for me I sort of you know it's either you either just do die and jump off that cliff or you you know you try and make it work and actually give back a bit and use your skills to try and help others and I think you know, that's why I wanted to come on your podcast, really, is to, you know, your guests have been amazingly inspirational to me and helped me in a time when I, yeah, I just thought I was never going to, never going to recover. Um, and it wasn't really about the cancer. It was just, I'm not going to come out of this depression. I I couldn't see a way out. But very slowly, I, I started to. And yeah, and I think I'm looking forward to trying, you know, with whatever, whatever time I do have left is, is yeah, just trying to be useful, I guess. Um, and yeah, I think you've mentioned being your service a few times and, and that rings, rings quite heavily with me as a, as a, yeah, something I feel like, yeah, a sort of a, a duty really. Can you tell me more about the, the feeling of, of usefulness and what that means to you? Because, and I ask about yeah. that because when we look at um, suicidal statistics, a, a lot of things that come up for a lot of people is feeling like a burden. And I would, I would imagine mm-hmm. that the opposite of feeling like a burden is feeling useful. 
So what does that mean mm. to you to feel useful? I just think making a difference in a few people's lives. Um, and, and for me with COVID, I think it's really struck home about community. You know, my, we've got a lovely little community around here and I don't think I appreciated it enough until COVID. And we've got some great neighbours, you know, and actually they're, they're very kind and, ha and have been through my diagnosis of, and treatment as well. But through COVID, you know, we all rallied together. You know, we uh, supported local businesses because we weren't able to travel to supermarket, big supermarkets. So the butchers and the bakers and the candlestick makers, which don't exist anymore, were, uh, you know, we used them. And you got to know your, yeah, your next door neighbours properly. And your, you know, I live in a village. It's a big village uh, near Stratford-on-Avon. But you know, I've just got to know so many more people through that time. And obviously being a physio, Pilates instructor, uh, healthcare worker, and I was vaccinating, you know, that was, uh, that was another thing when I trained to be a vaccinator, I, I felt obliged to, to help out, you know, Boris Johnson did the old war cry, you know, we all got to help. And I listened to him stupidly when well, no, I, I'm glad I did do that, but, uh, yeah, I, I don't really like the man. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> we won't go into politics here. <laughs> and um, is there anything about your journey or from your journey you think would be of useful for anybody who is either going through ovarian cancer or struggling with bipolar that we haven't discussed? Um, with the cancer stuff, I think, it's important to try and I think it's important to try and exercise as much as you can for your ability or status, you know, your health status, because there's a massive amount of evidence, scientific evidence to support exercise um, as a as an amazing pill. You know, if it could be boxed and made into a pill, we'd if I could if I could just do that, I'd be a. I'd be richer than Bill Gates anyway. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, that for me, that's the, that's the key thing in terms of what advice I can give. And from my knowledge and, and the, the courses I've done and the, the work I've done, um, because I think, you know, that's not really known about properly. It's, a, it's very, when you, when you get a diagnosis of cancer, obviously you need that life, saving treatment which tends to be chemo or radiotherapy um what other treatments are there surgery obviously uh but you know certainly my experience the exercise the, the sort of the physical stuff which is very important to me and it was, had always supported you know supported my mental health through the years was never really on the agenda and I think that's that's a massive mistake you know it, it's I don't think the resources are there, but it, it's a huge thing to be missing out. So the um, the multidisciplinary team who sort of decide on your treatment, your surgery, they all meet up. Um, there was never in that those team meetings uh, a physio or an exercise physiologist or you know anything. And I think it's madness because actually, you know, that there are you know gold standard evidence stats it's just oh, I can't say the word statistics about 
how it can help you manage and tolerate treatment. It can help uh, post-surgery massively, um, you know, all, all manner of things. And actually, I've got a good figure here. You've got an ink with any type of cancer. If you exercise, I mean, it has to be proper exercise, not just, oh, go for a walk and you feel like it. There are absolutely, you know, brilliant guidelines and they're very specific. Um, then you've got a 30% chance, 30% increase of survival. So that is huge. And, and for me, it's huge. You know, I'm, I'm really going for it on the exercise front as best I can. And I, I, you know, I understand that some, a lot of people, when they're diagnosed, it's not just cancer, they might have other comorbidities, they've got other health problems that might, you know, make it more difficult to, to take that, that exercise, whatever it may, in whatever form. But I think anything is, is better than uh, nothing or just, you know, what my oncologist said, and she's been brilliant, was her exercise isn't her thing. You know, chemotherapy, she knows everything. She just said, well, go for a walk when you feel like it. And, you know, really, I've never just gone for a walk when I feel like it. I would go for a run or I'd go for a two-hour bike ride or, you know, swim swim for an hour and a half in a lake. So it it wasn't particularly individualised. You know, she wasn't – no – no criticism of her at all but it's not looking at the individual in front of you and going right what do you need to be getting back to and how how can we help you in that way um right because yeah. there's also the mental health of it all in terms yeah. of she's just thinking about you physically but mm. mentally if we're not exercising you know it, it makes the depression even worse and and we yeah. know that from movement we release the the the, the get that daily dose of dopamine oxytocin serotonin mm endorphin so uh i appreciate you you bringing that up for the listeners out there and then yeah. last question i ask this mm-hmm. of all my guests because always imagine there's one person listening in who may be on the precipice of wanting to end their life before you kill yourself what would you say to them becky gray i would say which is actually what's quite a few of your guests have said is is just hang on in there and you're not going to feel like this forever. And I know that that will be hard to hear because I found it hard to hear, but, but it did give me that tiny bit of hope, that sort of little scrap of hope because you're hanging on by your fingernails. And I think things will change, even though you can't see it now, you won't always feel like this and just try and reach out if you can. I mean, I did when I was unwell with the severe depression and you know, it's quite, it was quite dangerous in a way, sort of life-threatening. I, I did tell lots of people in terms of friends, close friends and family, you know, I did make them very aware that I was, I was suicidal. And I knew that, I think in the little tiny bit of my brain, I knew that would probably save me because there was a lot of support and care and I didn't end up in hospital, but they, they, uh, they were, you know, on watch. And I had a two or three friends that I know I could guarantee if I called in the middle of the night saying I'm on a bridge or something would have would have helped me and would have been at you know straight away even though they've got three kids and so yeah even if you find it hard to tell people I think 
just try and uh and 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 and, as, and go back to that that i think we've all got a purpose um it's just maybe finding it you might not have found it yet but you know have hope that you will and you can be be of service to to others and maybe make a little bit of a difference to at least one person's life you know and I, and I love that message of making a difference to one person's life because i think a lot of us think about how do we impact the world or the universe and it's like you know what let's just try one person because if we each mm. reach one person then we've essentially have reached everyone and uh so thank you for that message thank you so much for tuning in remember this podcast is not a substitute for you going to get help for you reaching out call the 1-800-SUICIDE which is now 988 the the new uh hotline number in in America is 988 there are international suicide hotline numbers listed in uh each and every single one of the show notes and if you are struggling financially there are resources that you can also reach out to that are in the show notes also uh, you can go to thrivewithleo.com for one-on-one coaching with yours truly. Let's get to tomorrow together. Thank you so much, Becky Gray. Pleasure. Thank you.